scripture is from Paul's epistle to the Romans, the second chapter, verses 12 through 16, the return to reality, Romans 2, verses 12 through 16. For as many as have sinned without law, but also perished without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, which show the works of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my apostles my gospel. A contemporary scholar had it in translating some Greek novels from the time well before Christ. In his introduction to those novels, comments as follows. What the serious reader finds most objectionable in the Greek novels is their shrieking implausibility. There is no logical nexus between events and events, or between character and events. But in a world where the links of causality are broken, and fortune has taken control of the affairs of men, it is the very incalculability of events that absorbs interest. Logic is supplanted by paradox, and emotion becomes sentimentality to be savored for its own sake. The cavalier attitude to probability is not a mark of indifference, but a true reflection of current belief. Unquote. Now that's a very important statement. And it has far more to say than had it intended, as it were. He is speaking of Greek novels from the period before Christ. What he is saying is that to us as outsiders, these are full shrieking impossibilities, to use his phrase. But we could also say that the same thing characterizes all non-Christian literature. If you go to the epics of India, the thing that is so difficult for us as readers is their shrieking impossibility. Cause and effect are not present. Or go to the tales and legends of Africa or of China or of 
Germans in the period before Christ. Anywhere in the world. And again, the thing that marks them is the shrieking impossibility. This is true of the Greek drama. Aeschylus, Euripides, Sophocles, of Homer. The stories are interesting. They're impossible. Why? Haddis states the reason. There is no logical nexus between events and events, or between events and character. The reason for this is that if you take the God of Scripture out of the universe, out of the perspective of things, the logical nexus of all reality is God. Nothing follows consequently on anything else. This is why when you read the Greek literature, for example, the shrieking impossibilities can be of the fairy tale variety of the, or the horror variety. Now, of course, the various Greek dramas like Oedipus, the Oedipus trilogy, are regarded as among the greatest classics of the world. And yet anyone who reads them with a thoroughly Christian perspective is at once bewildered. Why in the world does all the evil that befalls Oedipus happen to him? There's no logical reason for it. Everything is stacked. And all the Greek tragedies are characterized by this fact. Everything is stacked. The dice are loaded. And this is the mark of all non-Christian literature. It's a question of fortune, or lady luck, the modern equivalent. If you're lucky, everything happens to you, whether you deserve it or not. And if you're unlucky, everything wrong happens to you, whether you deserve it or not. There is no logical nexus between event and event and character and event. The whole of the world, the whole of the universe, is meaningless. Now this is a matter of very great concern to us because this is again our literature. We're so steeped in it that we don't recognize it. But the modern film, the modern novel, the modern television fair is full of shrieking impossibilities. Trends now, a few years ago, everything was stacked favorably. Now everything is stacked unfavorably. There is no rhyme or reason to it. It's just that the writer is determined to present something that says, you see how rotten things are. There is no logical 
happens to you because it happens to you. Now, of course, this kind of attitude is a revival of paganism. Long ago, in the Roman era, Seneca said, the shifting hour flies with gospel wings, nor does swift fortune keep faith with anyone. Everything is a question of luck. From the early period of craft, there is a proverb which says, fortune has no reason. Don't try to understand the reason why things happen. They happen because they happen. Not because there is something in men's characters that brings them about. Not because there is a reason, a logic behind events. How the regenerate man, by our Lord's saving power, is delivered not only from sin, but from this world of shrieking impossibility. From a world without any logic into a world in which there is a logical nexus for everything. The universe is God. It is his handiwork. It has cause and effect in it. And so when we become Christian, one of the aspects, very often very painful, of our growth in Christ is that we continually find that we are a hard world of reality where cause and effect prevail. And all our lives we are learning more and more about God, about man, about law, about universe. And we become more and more aware of reality and less and less mindful of our imagination. This is a process which is a part of sanctification. The logical nexus becomes more and more central in our lives. We live less and less in the world of a fairy tale or the world in which the dice are loaded. All men, whether they like it or not, live in a real world. Not all men are ready to live in terms of reality, which means God. Now, St. Paul, in our scripture text, gives us a very sharp perspective on this matter. It's a very important point that he makes, and it's one that people have often bypassed. For many people, the doctrine of salvation is something that they abstract out of the world. They say, Jesus Christ is my personal Lord and Savior. But then that fact means you withdraw from the world, the world out there belongs somehow to the devil, you let the world go to hell, you don't concern yourself with the world because you are now abstracted from it, and meaning is salvation and nothing more. But meaning is total. 
The universe is a seamless God in our salvation puts us into the total meaning rather than abstracting that from And it's because so many fail to see that that this passage somehow becomes a problem to some commentators and they go all around the barn trying to explain it away. What does St. Paul say that troubles them? For as many as have sinned without law, that is, who have never heard of the law of God, who are outside the world of God's revealed law, shall also perish outside that law. As many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Now that's the thing that is a drop up here to the Constitution. There's no other way of translating the Greek there. St. Paul has just said earlier in the epistle that we are saved by faith alone. For the just shall live by faith. Not by works of the law. And here he turns around and says, The doers of the law shall be justified. I know of one evangelical church in Northern California which does not allow any Sunday school teaching on the Book of Romans. It raises too many upsetting questions. But it has to be answered. St. Paul does say, the just shall live by faith alone. But he also says, the doers of the law shall be justified. Now, he's not alone in saying that. After all, St. James in his epistle, chapter 2, verses 17 through 26, says something similar. Even so, faith, if it, if it hath not worked through Dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have worked. Show me thy faith without thy work. And I will show thee thy faith by my work. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought his with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled with death. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works the man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also is not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For the body without the spirit is dead. So faith without works is dead also.
St. Paul here says exactly what James said. The doers of the law shall be justified. But St. Paul also says in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 and 8 and 9, that God is rich in mercy. For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when you were dead in sin, hath taken us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. For by grace are ye saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of what, lest any man should boast. Now this is emphatic. Salvation is the work of God, and it is entirely of grace. And yet none of these statements are in contradiction. The initiative, the determination, and the ordination in our salvation is entirely of God. And it's not a puppet, nor is man an automaton. His response to God's grace and his manifestation of the grace is by faith, and faith reveals itself in work. We cannot have a dualistic view of man. Man is a unity. The world is a unity. There is causality in the world. There is a logical nexus to everything. And the whole of life is a seamless God, the handiwork of the sovereign God. Therefore, there is a relationship between faith and what? And those who are indeed redeemed will manifest their redemption in their work. The doers of the law shall be justified. Those who are outside the law are those who are outside the revealed law. They shall be judged, St. Paul tells us in the 14th verse, by the law of God written into their feet. The point he makes earlier in Romans 1, verses 18 through 21. Men suppress this knowledge. They hold it down in their unrighteousness, but they know it still. Those who have heard of the gospel are inside the tale of special revelation. St. Paul tells us, shall be judged in turn. The law, in some sense, justifies Paul makes clear. In the world outside Christ, there is no logical message. Things are not held together. They fall apart. There is no sense. Modern literature tries to find sometimes a logical message outside of Christ, and to this extent it is Christian in that it still sometimes tries to find a reason that basically it is irrational for without God Causality disappears from the world. We have only irrationality, lust, torture. What St. Paul is here saying thus 
because he is one and the same man who says that just shall live by faith alone. By grace are ye saved, and that not of yourselves. The doers of the law shall be justified. He tells us, we are redeemed by the grace of God in Christ. We are justified through the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ to the law, the supreme doer of the law. We were judged in Adam. We are redeemed in Christ. Now, because we are members of his body, we in him keep the law. We reflect his nature. Not perfectly, for we are not perfectly sanctified. So those who are justified by the atoning work of Christ are the doers of the law. We can recognize in them their justification. In Christ, we keep the law as individuals, though not perfectly. We are doers of the law. Ours is not a world of shrieking impossibilities, but the glorious handiwork of God. There is a logical nexus. Instead of a world of opposites, instead of a world of conflict, reality is human. Faith and work are not in opposition. There is a unity. All things good have their unity in God. And so we recognize our salvation is entirely of the grace of God. But this does not separate us from the world. It puts us totally in tune now with reality. And that grace of God manifests itself in us in faith and work. And now as we grow, we see a logical nexus, a meaning to all events. But our life is an experience of waking up from the shrieking impossibilities of unbelief, of sin, to the reality that there is a perfect unity, a perfect harmony in the world, there is a causality, so they reap. If we live in a world of sin, sin has its consequences. We have to beat it back step by step, conquer it step by step, or otherwise there is only a withdrawal and a denial of God's calling, of the logical nexus of things and of the meaning of all things. They are found in Christ. Pagan literature of old and modern pagan literature believe in the goddess Fortuna, Lady Love. Things are either set in your favor or against you. It's a question of grace. For us, it is a question of God, of his government, of his reality. And we know that all things have their meaning in him. 
He is the logical master. They all said this beautifully. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. They have stepped out of the world of unbelief and rebellion and meaninglessness into the world of perfect meaning, of total causality. For everything now is a part of God's creation, moves in terms of its purpose, and will progressively manifest the glorious harmony which is his purpose. Our return to reality in our redemption is marked by growing awareness of that logical Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that in Jesus Christ thou hast redeemed us from a world of meaninglessness, of emptiness, and of frustration into the glorious harmony of thy creation. We thank thee that for us all things do work together for good in Christ. We thank thee that day by day thou dost open our eyes to see cosmic stuff, to know reality, to move in terms of it, to be hearers and doers of thy word and to rejoice in the certainty of meaning in all things. O Lord our God, how great thou art, and how blessed is thy government, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, on our lesson? Yes. good question. Now, first of all, the fairy tales are all radically pagan in their background. Very radically pagan. They speak of a totally non-Christian and, in fact, an anti-Christian world. However, all of them have come to us with a long background of having been told and retold by Christians until all the original meaning is gone in many cases, and a new meaning has taken its place. The best example of this is a little outside the world of fairy tales, the Jesus Faber. There's not a one of them that was ever written by Aesop. Some of them go back before Aesop to the to India. Every one of them was totally reworked, totally rewritten by Christian monks in the medieval era in terms of scripture and biblical law. So Aesop's fables are now totally Christian. Totally Christian. 
And in spite of the effort of some editors to paganize them by substituting God for God in the text, they reflect a totally Christian perspective. Now, a similar process has been at work in the fairy tale. Not to the same extent in that the impossibilities are still there, but they have been more alive in that it's always uh, clear that there is a good side and an evil side. The moral uh, perspective is always preserved in fairy tales. However, the impossibilities of cause and effect still survive as far as uh, events are concerned. In the moral realm, they have been uh, awful. Represent good and evil clearly. So uh, they're not uh, a fair case, in other words. They do have a Christian moral perspective, basically, but the uh, impossible causality is still there in many cases. Yes. Ecclesiastes nine. 11, and the context. I returned and saw that the sun, under the sun, that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance, happiness to them all. Yes, here you have very much the kind of attitude I was talking about, the pagan attitude, very, very clearly summarized. Now, the context of the book of Ecclesiastes is this. It is called Rose and Nails. And I believe you find this in some of the, let's see, Twelve eleven. The words of the wise are as those and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies which are given from one shepherd. That's twelve eleven. Now, the one shepherd, of course, is God. The masters of assemblies you could translate as the rabbis of synagogues or teachers of the law. What are those and nails? Well, this was a teaching device. A goad was a presentation of the enemy's case, sharply and clearly, in order to say, all right, how are you going to answer this? Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is a series of goads with nails, that is, to drive home the opposite point, that to nail a particular attitude to kill it. So, what Solomon does in this book is to summarize the pagan view all around. He begins with vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All utility of utility. All is utility. Everything is useless. 
time and chance govern everything. Now he has summed up more clearly than any other single book ever written under the inspiration of God, the whole of the pagan perspective. The whole of it. And then he gives goats, the goats, and then the nails, you see, he hammers home the other one. For example, just looking down here, 10.8, I notice the nail. He that diggeth a pit shall fall into it, and whoso breaketh an hedge a serpent shall bite it. That shall bite it. Now, whoso diggeth a pit, here's strict causality, you see, earlier, time and chance. It's all a matter of luck. And now, here's the nail. If you dig a pit to trap somebody, by your dishonest feeling, you yourself are going to fall into a trap. And he so breaks in the head, a serpent shall bite him. I'm, I'm very fond of that particular one, and I use it often. What it means is this. In those days, you had hedge fences. There was a good reason for this. First, a hedge fence was a good windbreak. So you protected your fields from the wind. And second, it kept the neighbors cattle out. Third, it also provided a good place, a hedge fence, a thick hedge fence, say, that would go two, three feet or more thick. It also provided a nesting place for all kinds of birds and small game so that you could have an abundance of wildlife. So they were ideal things. And it's a pity that people don't use them today. There's a, a, some very good reasons for hedge fences. Now, if anyone broke through a hedge fence, say in the night, to uh, let his cows into somebody's uh, vineyard or orchard or pasture, There's a good chance that a serpent would bite him because since the small game and the birds were in these hedge fences, so were the snakes. And this was a very grave hazard of trying to break through a hedge fence at night. This is another beauty of the hedge fence. It uh, took a foolhardy man to try to break through it. So, what Solomon is here saying, he so great of a head fence that serpent to bite him. And by it he means he so great of the law of God. Serpent to bite him. There shall be retribution. There shall be judgment. Here's a nail. Now, this is how to read Ecclesiastes. Perhaps one of these days we may turn to the book and go through it. I, it's a book I enjoyed uh, teaching and have very often past years, but it's a tremendous statement of the pagan case and then nailing it down. That's how to read Ecclesiastes, yes.
They are not held accountable under God's law as revealed in Scripture, but God's law that is written in the pages of their hearts. In other words, they know that thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, and so on. All these are written on the pages of every man's heart. Paul makes this clear earlier. They're not accountable for the various details of the law as the Mosaic law spells it out and refines it and so on. So that uh, they are accountable in terms of the unwritten revelation rather than the written revelation. It means reprobation. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
in the original, uh, Robinson Crusoe, of course, does come to a uh, saving knowledge of Christ through a copy of the Bible. Yes. The original edition of, is a tremendously thick book, and you rarely have it today in its original. Now, the importance of Robinson Crusoe is very, very great. It was written, of course, by Daniel Defoe, who, uh, in some respects, was a wild character, but he was basically a Puritan. And it is a very real Puritan classic. In fact, that and uh, Pilgrim's Progress are each in their way two very great Puritan classics. One reason why Robinson, Robinson Crusoe is not popular today is because it's also regarded as a classic of uh, free enterprise and capitalism. Because his point is this. Robinson Crusoe is essentially a product of a Puritan society even though he is at the moment a castaway and a reprobate character. As he goes back to his faith, he also, by his initiative, constructs things so that he has civilization there on a deserted island and is living the life of a civilized man. And when he comes in contact with a savage, he turns Friday into a civilized man. Now, this, of course, was exactly the kind of thing that uh, men were beginning to do at that time because of the impetus of faith. So it's a very important document. Incidentally, it's based on the life of a very real man whose name was not Robinson Crusoe, but Alexander Selkirk, a Scotsman. Yes. In Matthew 25, the parable of judgment is the parable of, with regard not to the reprobate, but the Christian. When they are confronted with Christ, he says, inasmuch as we have done to the least of these, he has done it unto me. And he's showing those who claim to have faith but no work. I was sick, hungry, poor, and naked, and you knew me not. You had no faith. You see, our Lord was writing, uh, was speaking at a time when the church soon was going to be under persecution. So it was a very real test he was proposing. Supposing there was a Christian under arrest, or who had been wiped out under persecution, was going to business everything. To take him in or to visit him, mock you. You are one of those people too. Well, the we're going to demonstrate your faith. There was a Christian in prison, 
awaiting execution. And anyone who called on him was going to be very clearly known. And yet his life there, and it might be weeks and months, would be extremely difficult and painful, and he would need help, he would need food. Are you going to take care of your Christian brother? So, you can see the point of that argument. Well, our time is just about up. Let's bow our heads now for the benediction. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always.